Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Fuel Better podcast. Today's episode is going to be an interesting one, long overdue, timely, some might say. We're going to talk about hydration, electrolytes and sweat metabolism. Objectively, that might not sound very interesting, but if you're an endurance athlete, a practitioner, someone in the sports nutrition world, this is actually a very interesting topic. There's an awful lot to this. There's a lot of poor practices and maybe not necessarily misinformation, but a general misunderstanding as to how we need to approach hydration and very importantly, electrolyte replacement. So clearly, sport puts additional demand on our physiology. It increases our energy requirements, it increases our fluid requirements, and it increases our electrolyte requirements to a degree. And it's that nuance is what we need to talk about here. So people tend to work in absolutist terms. Your calorie requirement is X. You need to consume X. You burned this many calories in training, or your session is this long, you need to eat this many grams of carbs. Where we have been going with sodium lately is, well, we can test your sodium levels in your sweat. And let's say it's A, you need to replace all of A. And it turns out that's not necessarily how it works. So I'll I'll walk you through all the nuance of this. Strap in, it's an interesting one. To start today's episode... I'm going to talk a little bit about dehydration first and fluid balance and talk about why that's important. And then I'm going to segue into sodium replacement, some of the research on that. And then we're going to talk about some tactics you can put in play to manage heat conditions, manage a high sweat rate, manage high sodium losses, etc. So let's get into it. Dehydration is one of the main things that destroys endurance performance. And when we talk about dehydration, we typically work in percentage of body mass loss. So I'm 80 kilos, 1% dehydration for me is 800 mils or 0.8 of a kilo of sweat loss. I hope that makes sense to you. The clinical threshold that we try to keep to is no more than 2% dehydration. Now, in, in theory, that's what we do. In reality, if you have a ultra runner who sweats for a liter an hour and is running for 14 hours, there's absolutely not a hope they're going to drink 13, 12, 13 litres of fluid in that event. It's just not considered to be physically possible. I'll come back to that. Just for the illustrative purposes, we want to maintain no more than 2% dehydration. At that 2% mark, you see about a 10% drop in performance, at least more if it's hotter. The more dehydrated you get, the incrementally slower you get. There's a couple of things happening as you get dehydrated. Your stroke volume drops because you have less blood volume. Blood is mostly water. If you're getting dehydrated, by definition, you have less fluid in your body. 
So less oxygen, less nutrients get around your body. You slow down. You start making more lactate. Exercise feels harder because there's less blood. You have less less cooling, less blood moving to the surface of your skin. You start to get warmer. You start to not be able to sweat as effectively and you develop hyperthermia, high body temperature. As your core temperature rises, the cost and glycogen cost of exercise dramatically increases. So training in heat versus training in, uh, I suppose, not heat, you, you burn much more glycogen to train in a hot environment if you're not acclimatized to it. So you hit the wall an awful lot quicker. If you're someone prone to gut issues, getting hot, getting all hot and bothered when you're out in your sessions or your races, that's going to dramatically increase the likelihood you're going to have some gut problems, specifically exercise-induced ischemic colitis. In layman's terms, a pain in your stomach and diarrhea. The reason that happens, think of it as the most important thing as you get dehydrated and start to heat up, because we heat up when we exercise anyway, is regulating core temperature. If that goes out of kilter, you're snookered. So your body will deprioritize blood flow to your gut and it'll do that to a higher degree as you get dehydrated. So it can put as much blood as possible towards the surface of your skin to keep you cool. The more blood loss you have from your gut, the more likely you are to have a gut problem. I hope that makes sense. So clinically, 2%. That's where we draw the line in the metaphorical sand. In reality, research does show that athletes frequently reach dehydration levels of 3, 3.5, 4, sometimes 5%. That can be dangerous. That's where you have someone who's at risk of exercise-associated heat stroke, possibly electrolyte disturbances. Definitely not good for your kidneys or your blood pressure. Definitely puts pressure on your heart. It's definitely suboptimal for performance. Whilst you may not have maybe noted this we're all aware that extreme in climates and extreme environments make exercise hard case in point the doha world athletics championships a couple of years back or the tokyo olympics for any of the endurance events finish times were much much slower for endurance based events because the climate was unforgiving and the toll that has on sweat rates ability to thermoregulate all that stuff goes out the window so athletes end up working harder to move slower so we all we all know that's how it affects us to put some cool numbers on it because i know you guys really like numbers and you like to apply the numbers to yourself which is helpful and that's why i make this podcast sweat rates vary and are highly plastic so you can change your sweat rate and i'll talk about that in a second because it's very i think it's very cool sweat rates can vary anywhere from 0.4 of a litre all the way to 5 litres an hour. Yes, 5 litres an hour. If your sweat rate is above 1.8 litres per hour, you're considered to be a heavy sweater. So that's the heavy sweater range. If you're a 400 mils per hour candidate, you're an extremely light sweater. You might think that heavy sweaters definitely require more sodium, more electrolytes. They're more losing more sweat. They're losing more salts. We need to replace more aggressively. And in fact, the opposite is true from what the research and modeling has told us. But I'll get into that later because I know you're curious now. So I can keep talking about hydration for another little while. So that's the sweat range. Athletes, mostly from what I see, will will be on average around 1 to 1.2 liters per hour. If you look at different papers, they'll give you different averages. Generally, it's somewhere in that striking range. So if you're doing the maths in your head, 
you know, and we say, let's say arbitrarily, my sweat, my sweat rate, I should say, my sweat rate is one liter an hour and I am 80 kilos. It's going to take me about an hour and 40 minutes to get 2% dehydrated. That's not that bad. Unless I'm doing a half Ironman and it takes me three hours to run it, or I am a, I am a cyclist doing a four or five hour long ride, or I'm an Ironman triathlete out for 10 hours, then those numbers really add up. And it's not uncommon for someone to have over the space of a race, six, seven, eight, nine liters of sweat leave their body. That's not uncommon. People lose significant amounts of weight when they exercise. So you've done the maths, you you know what the range is, you know what a heavy sweater is, you might know what an average sweater is as well. If we want to keep to that sand line that we've drawn of 2% dehydration, we kind of need to work backwards. The easiest way to do this, and it's how I often do it with patients and clients, I'm going to run through a totally pretend example to illustrate this. Let's say you are 100 kilos and you sweat for one liter an hour. That's your sweat rate. You're 100 kilos, one liter an hour. And you're going doing a bike session that's going to take you four hours. We expect you're going to sweat four liters. We don't want you to lose any more than 2% of your weight in sweat. So that's two liters. So you're going to lose four. We only want you to lose two. So how we how we get you to that 2% dehydration by the end of your session, basically we look at the difference between how much can we let you lose and how much are you going to lose and we divide that by the amount of hours you're out on the road. So 2 minus 4 is 2, divided by 4 is half. So a 100 kilo cyclist with a 1 litre an hour sweat rate doing a 4 hour session needs to drink 500 mils per hour to stay within 2% dehydration. I hope that made sense. These examples can get a little bit more complicated. I recently had a client who was about 50 kilos, had a one liter per hour sweat rate, was a three hour marathon runner, achieves 6% dehydration at the end of a marathon, not really going to be able to bridge that gap fully. So even if we look at how much someone is capable of drinking during exercise on the bike, people have a little bit more leeway because they're more stable. It's not as much of a full body exercise. Gut function remains more intact. Even logistically, you can actually have better access to fluids because you carry them with you. I know some cyclists who can take 750 mils to a litre an hour. I know one guy who can do a litre an hour. He's probably listening to the podcast. Most people are 500 to 750 mils on the bike. That's the, the fluid intake range. For running, Generally speaking, a 500 ml bottle, maybe a 600 ml bottle. And again, I know one guy who can drink 750 ml per hour while running, but it's it's somewhere in that range of what is possible. It is highly trainable, but that's that's typically where people will tend to be. So if we go back to my my client there, you know, with the the 6% dehydration after a 3-hour marathon, let's say they can drink 500 mils per hour so over three hours that's one and a half liters there they're going to lose three liters in total they drink one and a half there's a one and a half liter 
deficit there to build up. So it's still 3% dehydration. We're still not making the mark, even if this athlete drinks 500 mils per hour during their, their race, they're still going to go over that critical clinical threshold. What can we do? I'm sure you're asking, well, I'm going to, I'm going to answer that question. There's a couple of things we can do to minimize sweat losses or not necessarily minimize sweat. We don't ever want to decrease your ability to sweat. Doing that impairs your ability to thermoregulate, which can be very dangerous. And before I talk about, and I apologize for all of the segues here, but I am talking off the top of my head. Before I talk about how we can offset fluid losses, I just want to point out that heat adaptive training increases sweat rate. So as you get heat adapted, your sweat rate happens quicker. It's more anticipatory. You have better cooling. That's that's how they refer to that. Your capacity to thermoregulate is improved because you have an earlier and heavier sweat rate. The hallmarks of someone who's heat adapted is someone who sweats earlier and heavier, has a reduced heart rate at pace, and even the temperature of their skin drops. There are other interesting things that happen with electrolyte losses, which I will touch on shortly. But side note, being adapted to the heat means you sweat more, not less. The fitter you are, the earlier and the more you sweat. So I know people who brag to me and they're like, yeah, man, I don't break a sweat. It's like, well, that's because you don't exercise ever, probably, or hard enough. So that's, it seems like a humble brag. <laughs> it's actually, you're seriously flagging yourself off if you're bragging about a very low sweat rate, unless you're one of the very few people who are on that low end of the bell curve. Generally, people with low sweat rates are not heat adapted or not very fit. That's a general overview. I do work with patients and clients who are, um, not fitting into that category, but do have low sweat rates. So anyways, heat adaption is not what we do to lower our sweat rate. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to impair thermoregulation. We do want to prevent you getting hot in the first place, or we want to give you more fluid to work with in the first place. There's three things we can do. The first one is easy. The second one is slightly harder. The third one is an absolute pain in the arse. So I'll, I'll, I'll go through them. You can use the equivalent of a LucasAide Sport slush puppy or a whatever, a Gatorade slush puppy or Powerade. This is not brand affiliated, so I'll mention them all. Energize Sport slush puppy, if, if you will, before an exercise bout. And I say slush puppy and not cooled beverage because there's a huge difference between drinking something that's an ice slurry. That's the scientific term, an iced slurry something that is crushed or blitzed ice and liquid as opposed to just a cooled beverage. The difference between ice and a cold drink, when I have a cold drink, which I'm doing right now, that heats up pretty quick inside my body. There's not much heat transfer capacity there. If I have a slush puppy or if I have an iced slurry, which doesn't sound very appetizing, admittedly, but they could have used a better word. If I consume an ice slurry, ice cools in a way that has latency. So the the ice doesn't just melt instantly and actually hoovers up basically an awful lot of energy from our body. And it has this really big heat transfer capacity. So if you ingest an iced or iced slurry beverage over a 60 to 90 minute period before an exercise bout, 
your core temperature will drop and it'll change the time of events. So it'll take you far longer to reach that level of hyperthermia or body temperature where you start sweating profusely and where performance is um, negated. And that iced slurry beverage tactic, that can, it's hard to exactly quantify how much it saves you in sweat losses. But if I have an athlete who has a high sweat rate, a low body weight, and they're not able to drink enough in their race or session to keep within 2% dehydration, we'll start with an ice slurry. So we prevent hyperthermia in the first place. That's practical. That's thing number one. One part ice, one part sports drink, horse it into a blender, drink it over a 60-90 minute period before you go. Job done. If you want to add a layer of complexity to that, very loosely, you can get a, about a litre of fluid. You can make it with an ice slurry. And you can put about seven grams of table salt in that. Now, you're not alone in thinking that that does not sound very appealing or appetizing, but salt, in it, it improves your ability to hold on to fluid. So sodium, sodium homeostasis is controlled very, very tightly. A lot of people don't get this, and this is where the confusion happens with electrolyte intake and replacement. If you consume a very salty beverage, which seven grams in a liter of fluid or fluid and ice would be, you retain more water, okay? That one liter salty beverage is worth around 600 mils of additional fluid. So you can do that. Usually sodium citrate is used, but seven stroke eight grams of table salt will achieve the same thing if it's done in a liter bolus of water. So that'll help you hold on to an extra 600 mils of fluid. So if I go back to the example of my client, that's quantifiable. So my 50 kilo client, three hour race, one liter sweat rate, can drink 500 mils per hour. If they can tolerate that very salty one liter beverage, they will then only lose net 0.9 kilos of fluid or they'll be 0.9 kilos lighter pre-race and post-race. They're within 2% dehydration, job done. That can be a very effective one for races up to four to six hours, depending on sweat rate, capacity to drink, and um, temperature, maybe heat adaption. So that's that's item number two. Item number three is actually something I've never ended up doing with anybody. I don't think, not that I can recall. I remember reading the reading the methodology for this and thinking, God, that doesn't sound fun. So in theory we can use 1 to 1.2 grams of glycerol monostearate, which is a plasma expander. Basically helps you hold on to much more fluid. The kicker is though, you have to you have to mix it with about 28 to 29 mils of fluids per kilogram of body weight. So for me, I'd have to have around, roughly speaking, 90 to 100 grams of glycerol monostearate in a two and a half-ish liter beverage. And I would have to drink that in four boluses over a three hour period before I go. I'll hold on to north of a liter of fluid. So it can be helpful. I've never actually resorted to this tactic with anybody. And it's something I would exercise caution with doing. One of the side effects of this is projectile vomiting en masse. And it's not something you can really do if you have anything like high blood pressure or heart issue. It's generally avoid if possible. So we we try and train athletes to be able to drink more during training 
we try and use cooling tactics um, as best possible to minimize losses. So sometimes it's about minimizing damage and that's that's legitimately true. There is a fourth option. It's sort of related to the, the cooling we can use cooling vests and cooling hats and you can you can even use ice bats. Some athletes do that and that does in fact help. The cooling hat, there's a hat you can get that can cool the top and back of your head. I'm not sure how effective it is, but I do know that apparatus like that does exist. So that's something that you can also utilize. So that's that's hydration. That's that's uh, how we calculate how much you need to drink or try to drink in an exercise bout. We've looked at where we draw the line in the sand, where performance will jump off of a cliff edge. We've talked about how to replace during training. We have looked at sweat rates. If you want to calculate your sweat rate, by the way, it's really easy to do. You don't need a lab to do this. They actually use this methodology in labs. You can very loosely, pick a session that's about one hour in duration. Do it outdoors if you plan on racing or competing outdoors. If you do CrossFit or indoor rowing or whatever it might be, do the sweat test indoors. The relative humidity will have a big part to play here. So side note, um, relative humidity indoors is way lower than outdoors and relative humidity at altitude is way lower than it is, say, at not altitude. As the relative humidity drops, you actually lose more water vapor. Think of it like osmosis. Things go from high to low concentration. In low humid environments, airplanes as well, for example, or air-conditioned rooms, you lose an awful lot more water vapor from your breath. So you get dehydrated much, much easier. So that's that's quite important. Hard to quantify exactly how much more dehydrated you get, but drinking to thirst on top of your baseline requirements, which are generally... 35 mils per kilogram of body weight. That's a good heuristic to follow. So we've talked about intra-workout. We've talked about calculating how you can go about this. We've looked at some tools. We've talked about humidity. The sweat test, just to, to finish off that before I forget. Basically, what you want to do is weigh yourself before and after a session, a one-hour session, just so it's easier to do the mats. You want to weigh in naked if possible, ideally naked or minimal clothing, I suppose. And you want to be dry for both weights. So if you jump on the scales right after your session and you're covered in sweat, the scales doesn't, can't delineate between you and your sweat. You have to dry off and get into dry clothing, again, of similar weight. So boxers, sports bra, whatever it might be, both times. Try not to eat or drink anything. Try not to use the toilet between your weigh-ins or unless you're willing to quantify all of those things. And what you're looking for is weight before, weight after, duration of session. Your weight loss, if you approach it in this kind of rigid manner that I've described, that'll be your sweat rate, more or less. There's a there's a much more scientific way to do it. You can do it in a very controlled lab setting, but most people don't have access to that and don't need that. And this rudimentary method works just fine. So you should do that. If you're an endurance athlete, if you're doing an Ironman, if you're doing an ultra you just have a big old training load or you're curious, you should do that sweat test. It'll make all of this stuff far more actionable for you. And this is something I would do with each and every one of my sports nutrition clients. We do sweat tests and that that's the foundation then for all of our protocols for hydration, electrolyte replacement, etc. Okay, so 
let's say you've done your sweat test and you sweat on average, you're an average sweater, you lose about a litre, 1.2 litres an hour. And you want to know, well, <clears throat> how much water fluid should I drink on any day? How much is my total fluid requirement? It's a good question. It's an important question. Fluid requirements are easy to easy to work out. So basically, it goes like this. We look at baseline, which is 30 to 35 mils per kg of body weight. So in my case, 2.8 liters per day without training factored in. Then it gets a bit trickier. So let's say that you're also an average sweater. So you're 30, 35 mils per kilogram of body weight. You're an average sweater. You lose 1 to 1.2 liters an hour. In training, let's say we make a rule that you drink 5 to 600 mils per hour during training. So we're 35 mils, 5 to 600 mils per hour. And then to rehydrate. So this is important. To rehydrate after a session, you want to drink around 1.25 to 1.5 times your fluid deficit. So just to explain, this is why it's important to know your sweat rate. If you know that you lose, let's say, a litre an hour and you can drink 500 mils per hour during training to rehydrate properly, you need to drink 1.25 to 1.5 times that deficit which will be 500 mils multiplied by 1.25 to 1.5. So for an athlete with a one liter hourly sweat rate, they're drinking 500 mils per hour during training. They need to drink somewhere between 625 and 750 mils per hour of training done within a three hour period after training. So I'll, I'll summarize fluid requirements for an athlete who has a one liter sweat rate and can drink 500 mils per hour. 30 to 35 mils per kg of body weight, baseline, plus 500 mil per hour of exercise, plus 625 to 750 mil post-workout per hour of work done. That's how we calculate fluid requirements. And myth busting, it doesn't have to just be water. In fact, it shouldn't just be water. If you consume only water and you have very high sweat outputs, that can, to a degree, dilute electrolytes. It's better to get them from a variety of things like juice, milk, tea, coffee, if you're so inclined, as many of my followers know I am. As I sip my coffee, that felt like a bit of um, a blind by podcast break there, listening to me sipping my coffee. I hope that was a an unexpected ASMR vibe there. Anyways, I'll get back on track. The point is you want to vary your fluids. Fun fact, not strictly relevant unless you are from China, but in China, people get about 80 to 90% of their fluids from their food. They they consume lots of broths, soups, etc. They you'll never really see them drinking things. They don't they simply don't need to. That's not the case here in Ireland. Okay. So that's that's fluid more or less. That's that's pretty much what you need to know for the most part, okay? Now let's talk about electrolytes. So the big one is sodium. Sodium and salt are not the same thing. People think they are the same thing. Salt contains sodium. Salt is a source of sodium. If you want to calculate how much sodium is in your salt, divide it by 2.4. So in, let's say, 5 grams of salt, there is 3.5 grams of sodium. So sodium is important. 
sodium homeostasis is very tightly regulated. Your body likes to keep a very narrow range of sodium in your blood. If it goes high or low, that's considered to be a problem. High or low sodium can impact muscle cramping. It can impact heart function. It can impact breathing. It's pretty dangerous. You don't want your sodium to be high or low. We want it to be in range. So that's the starting point for understanding electrolyte balance. We want normotremia, normal sodium levels, not hyper or hyponatremia. Clinically, if we're trying to evaluate someone, we're looking at their hydration status. You can look at the specific gravity of someone's urine or you can look at their blood. If you have high urea and high sodium content in your blood, that means you're dehydrated. And that's really important. As you get incrementally more and more and more dehydrated, your body's sodium level rises. High sodium is a problem, okay? I see a culture of people being obsessed with the salt content of their sweat. People do sweat tests. People get the sodium levels of their sweat. People even go as far as to take tablets or salt sticks and tablets that have more than one gram of sodium in them. I'm just going to do a tangent for a second and remind you that as a clinical dietitian, I spend most of my day advising people to consume less salt. Higher sodium intakes, whether you're an athlete or not, or I should say having too much sodium in your diet, that's associated with high blood pressure, kidney disease and stomach cancer. None of those are very cool things in particular, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say. So the, the kind of, I don't want to say fun athletes, but the non-professional athletes who do some exercise, but are not necessarily in a place where they're totally um, immune to health issues. When I see normal people doing sport moderately, taking high dose electrolytes, all I can think of is risk factor. You're going to have high blood pressure. You're going to have reflux at the very least. High salt will give you reflux. If you're chewing salt sticks, that's a brilliant way to get the mouth ulcer. So don't get me started on this. Anyways, to come back to point, the sodium composition of your sweat is a tricky one. And it's tricky for a couple of reasons. Sodium composition of sweat varies massively. So the the range generally, it can be anywhere from half a gram to two grams an hour. The average sodium sweat losses for athletes, at least in the last paper I read, was about a thousand milligrams per liter. It was just shy of a gram per liter. One gram for one liter of sweat loss of sodium, not salt. So again, one gram of sodium would be 2.4 grams of salt. Okay. So that's that's an important distinction. You don't mix those up. So that, that's your average sodium sweat loss. If we bear in mind that in Ireland and in Western countries, the average person eats up to twice the salt recommended intake, eight to 10 grams a day, we have to then acknowledge that there is some research to suggest that if you have a high salt intake, and we know that our body really tightly regulates sodium sodium levels, you're going to see an increase in urinary sodium excretion 
and sweat salinity, the, the sodium content of your sweat. So that's, that's actually been shown in some research. If you're a very high sodium sweater, that can simply be partly reflective of a habitual high sodium intake. So that's important, very important to bear in mind. And I had a client recently who was telling me that her eyes were stinging her. She had salt deposits on her on her clothes and all that. And we looked at her diet, sure as hell, her salt intake was absolutely huge. So we reduced it and more or less within a week, no more stinging eyes, no more salt deposits. That's an extreme example, but it does contribute to your sweat salinity because it's sodium blood content, not sodium sweat content is the key, key, key thing. Okay. So that's important. So if you're a salty sweater, that's one modifiable factor. Look at your diet. I did say that heat adaption was an interesting part of this discussion. And there is some research to suggest that as you become heat adapted, which you can do by moving to the Mediterranean, for example, I lived in Malta for a year. It was brilliant. Uh, unfortunately, I don't live there anymore, but perhaps you can move if you have geographic flexibility or if you can't up and leave and move to a different or warmer climate, you can overlayer or use saunas concurrently with sessions to elicit some degree of heat adaptive response. With global warming in summertime in Ireland, you could probably just go outside and train here in Clonmel or Sores where I'm sitting right now and it'll it'll do the job all by itself. Anyways, I, I digress. Heat adaptive training can reduce sweat salinity by up to 90% in some people. That probably wouldn't be the average reduction, but it it's pretty significant. So if you're a salty sweater, it's not necessarily your first port of call to instantly go for high salt electrolyte tablets. You don't need salt sticks. You don't need to be having a bag of salted peanuts before and after training or a big bag of crisps. That's just going to give you health issues. So the, with my clients and patients, first things we do, reduce your sodium intake in your diet or your salt intake, do some heat adaptive training, that'll change that sweat salinity. And this brings me on to my point. Some of you who follow me know that for maybe two or three weeks last year, I launched a sweat testing service and then I instantly disbanded it when I read the, the newest research on this. So lots of people I know We'll get sodium sweat tests done. And basically how, how it works for most people, you stick your finger in an electrode and it elicits some sweat and the little machine can tell you how much sodium is in your sweat. I had a similar, I had a similar piece of kit. Um, I collected some sweat samples from people. I got some patches. I squoze the sample into this reservoir and it gave you a rough sodium content. Those are not accurate and they're not necessarily valid. And what I mean by valid is, let's say if I do a sodium sweat test today, I might get a value, let's say it's a thousand milligrams, let's say it's an average sweat loss, 1000 milligrams or one gram per liter. And then I change the salt content of my diet and go on a heat camp. My sweat salinity will be totally different. So the, the measure means nothing. If you do a sodium sweat test, and you're planning on using that information on race day, it only has temporary validity or transient validity. Like if you do it the day before your race, well and good, fair enough. And even then, 
you have to bear in mind and understand that there's not necessarily total agreement in how the research assesses sweat sodium content. So there's that that kind of electrical impulse. You can do patches or more accurately, but not done commercially because it's hard. You do the whole body washdown technique where it's exactly what it sounds like. You get someone to sweat and you you basically just rinse them like they were a car and you collect said water and you assess you can assess the sodium content in a in a roundabout way. It's it's complex. It requires a specialist lab and very trained technicians, but that's the most accurate way to determine your sodium sweat losses. You can get a similar similar value milligrams per liter, for example. That's the most accurate way to do it. Anything other than that either does not necessarily have validity or it just simply isn't as accurate. So that's quite important to understand. Understand what the test you're doing means and does say a couple of patches on your upper body or your index finger, does the sweat losses there accurately reflect the sweat losses? And is it a fact that you lose sodium uniformly across your body? It's not necessarily true. Or at least there's no validated, you know, there's no validated data on that. So that's important. If you know you're thinking, well, I lose 2000 milligrams an hour, which is very salty sweat. Just be careful with how you interpret that data. Before you start taking 2000 milligrams an hour in training, I would, you know, reduce your salt, move the crisps, throw the salt shaker out, do some heat training, see if that helps. And then I'm going to I'm going to move on then to electrolyte replacement during exercise. So what I see commonly done is people will do these sweat tests. They'll say, class, I lose a thousand megs an hour. I'm going for a six hour session. I'm going to eat six grams of sodium. Six grams of sodium is almost two and a half days worth of salt or sodium, I should say. That is not not a good idea for the vast majority of people to do during exercise. It's it's just not necessarily required. So the the common wisdom was as I started this podcast episode with absolutist, this is your sodium loss. This is what you must replace. And it's important to understand what the picture is starting to look like is sweat sodium content is a red herring. We care more about serum sodium content because that is the more physiologically relevant item. Your sweat can adapt and change. It's highly plastic and it can do that to maintain serum sodium levels because that's what's going to possibly give you an arrhythmia, a muscle cramp, breathing issues, hyponatremia, etc. So that's important. And there's a really cool study that's been done recently and we can we can kind of summarize it. And I have it open here in front of me. I'm after reading this paper a couple of times. AJ McCubbin, he is a very prolific sports science researcher there's some snippets of his research on the Ask Your Eukendrop website, My Sports Science. And if, if you wanted to look at this stuff yourself, I would encourage you to do so. It's it's very, very interesting. It's a it's a pretty fascinating topic, at least in, in my opinion. But uh, full disclosure, I could be considered to be a nerd. And what's what's interesting to note is that the modeling here 
the, the the results it gave basically it was designed on the premise that an athlete was hydrating to keep within 2% dehydration and the model was designed to maintain um, normal sodium levels okay so normal natremia not high not not low sodium levels how much sodium does an athlete need to take to keep their sodium levels steady during exercise and the results are surprising and it's counterintuitive to what you might think and the the results from this explain why in the research base electrolyte and sodium provision doesn't necessarily consistently result in improved exercise performance because it's not that simple the sweat sodium losses appear to be a red herring for most people so very simply put what has kind of come from this generally speaking the overall vibe if you're not able to drink 70 percent of your sweat rate bearing in mind that average is 1 to 1.2 liters per hour if you can't drink 70 percent of your sweat rate all you really need is an isotonic because as you get dehydrated as i mentioned earlier serum sodium and urea urea is not important but serum sodium levels for sure rise and if if your body tightly regulates and prioritizes serum sodium as you get dehydrated does it make sense to throw high dose electrolytes on top of that it does not that does not make sense to do it's not advisable we want to maintain normal natremia not fully replace sweat sodium losses so i hope this picture is starting to build here for you and on under my sports science website it actually breaks it down nicely it takes some snippets of the data if you are a heavy sweater and you sweat in excess of 1.8 liters an hour if you're not able to drink 70 percent of your sweat losses you just need an isotonic heavy sweaters and doing exercise bouts for up to four hours who can't drink 70 percent of their fluid requirements and bear in mind if you're a heavy sweater you definitely can't drink 70 percent of your fluid requirements all you need is an isotonic to maintain normal natremia you do not need high dose electrolytes it gets a little bit more kind of fine-toothed than this and predominantly the the research paper modeled that if you can only drink 50 percent of your fluid losses even if you're doing an event up to 10 hours it would appear that at most if you're a heavy sweater and you can drink let's say let's say you lose 1.8 liters an hour you can only drink 900 mils you only would really need the equivalent of a high five zero tab per hour at most or a leucozate sport equivalent of sodium per hour to maintain normal natremia and that's that's interesting and here's the counterintuitive part if you're a very low sweater but you still drink during exercise you have to replace your sodium far more and i'll explain let's say you you lose sodium in your sweat but you replace that liquid fully and let's say you only drink water what happens is you're really diluting your electrolytes so if if you're able to replace 80 90 percent of your fluid requirements in an exercise bout you are the person who might need higher dose electrolytes 
And if you're a 400 ml per hour sweater and you drink 400 mils per hour, you, you need, you need the, the strong stuff. That's, that's the person who needs to do that. Everyone else pretty much does not need to do that. So I hope that's, I hope that's made it kind of straightforward in your head. It's, it's totally the opposite of what most people think. So low sweaters and high drinkers are more prone to developing low serum sodium levels, which is dangerous, can be fatal. So they need more sodium in their drinks. Heavy sweaters who have no hope of replacing their fluid losses, they need less sodium because their sodium levels rise anyway. So I really hope this makes sense. For for the vast majority of people, if you if you can, you know, if you can replace 70% or more of your sweat losses, you really only need to be replacing 30 to 70% of your sodium sweat losses. So the reason you don't necessarily need to instantly do a sweat test is because from experience, most people sweat far more than they can drink and as such will generally fall into the category where we're trying our best to keep them from reaching 2% dehydration. It's, it's generally going to happen in a long distance event and we're trying to minimize the damage. And in the vast, vast majority of athletes, you're going to see rises in serum sodium levels. So unless you're the absolute one in a million person who has a tiny sweat rate but drinks loads and does ultra endurance events, you are the person who needs to do a sweat test. But even then, you need to be careful with how you do it. You need to do it very close to your race. You need to factor in other variables first, like salt intake or the variety of maybe how much salt you might eat on a week-to-week basis. You want to keep that steady. You may look at doing some heat adaptive training to increase your sweat rate. So that's something I've done with people who have had low sweat rates is we've 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 heat adapted them or really focused on that to increase it to minimize the necessity for for high dose electrolyte provision and that and that's worked very very well and if it if it comes to it if you do end up doing a sodium sweat test the manner in which you do it the accuracy is still questionable so i don't know where that really leaves the the one in a thousand athletes that I might come across who might benefit from it, it leaves you with a degree of inaccuracy. General rule of thumb, if I think someone is a low sweater, high drinker, endurance athlete, I'll recommend based off of average sweat losses. So as I said, if you're not sure, you can always rely on the average. The average sodium sweat loss is about a thousand milligrams per liter. So if, if you are a low drinker, high sweater and you're doing an event up to five hours you're probably looking at replacing somewhere between 30 and 65 percent of your sodium losses 300 to 650 milligrams if you're doing an event that's 10 hours long you probably want to be replacing around 80 to 90 percent of that so 800 to 900 milligrams so in in theory what I would do with a low sweater, high drinker, is I assume average sweat salinity and we take the steps, the heat adaption to increase the sweat rate, reduce sodium sweat losses and we look we look at their diet, make sure it's steady and then we use that average sodium sweat loss, that one gram per litre and we work off of that. 
And I, I try to model sodium provision guidelines based off of the modeling done by AJ McCobbin. It's a really fascinating piece of research and it's, it's been a real kind of missing link and very misunderstood by people. Me included about a year and a half, two years ago, I totally changed my mind, did a 180 degree flip on this. And that doesn't mean I'm not necessarily educated or up to speed. It's important as a practitioner in any way, shape or form that, you know, you're willing to change your mind and read the paper. And if it disagrees with you, not kind of sweep it under the rug or just say yeah, it couldn't be right. Um, being able to change your mind is very, very important. And yeah, look, this is this is the big one for me in the last the last two years. It's been a total change in how I operate and approach things. But I hope you'll agree with me after listening to this episode that it makes far more sense and it's far more practical. So I hope you found that episode interesting. I'm sure that you're surprised by some of the things in that and that you found some of those items counterintuitive. I would encourage you to reach out to me if you're doing an endurance event over the summertime, if you're a heavy sweater, if you're someone who's getting gut issues, cramps, headaches, if you're a salty sweater, if you have salt deposits on your clothes or you just you just don't really know what you're doing and you want some help with this. I help people with these types of problems all the time and I have a pretty good track record, I'd like to think. If you're interested in learning more about these topics, be advised again that I am running a webinar in a couple of weeks time, July 25th, 7 p.m. The link is going to be in the show notes and it's going to be in my bio and the topic of the webinar is it's an Ironman Nutrition Masterclass. I have a couple of athletes, patients and many followers who are going to do the Yall Ironman and they're going to do Cascai later on this year. Now would be the time to get your nutrition tactics squared away and it's very, very important and you know, I talked in this episode about some experimental tactics you can do. It's very important to never do anything new on race day. That's a cardinal sin. You want to practice everything umpteen times in training. And people often find this strange that, that I would say this, but nutrition shouldn't be the main focus on race day. It shouldn't even register on your mind. It's supposed to be automatic. That's how I know I've done my job right. When people aren't freaking out about it, they just view it as tying their shoelaces or brushing their teeth. It's just ingrained. So if you want to get that level of readiness and I suppose rest assurance in that you are squared away, you're going to have the best possible race. You're going to manage the conditions well. You're not going to run out of fuel. You're going to really optimize yourself. I would encourage you to come along and listen. Uh, I'm going to share all my secrets. And the last two years I've worked with multiple national triathlon championships from sprint distance to middle distance to Ironman and half Ironman and some of some Ironman world medalists. So if you want to know the secrets of the pros, I would encourage you to uh, book a spot while you still can. Anyways, that's all for today. Until next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 